uh, there was a scene, and I think it was in the movie Face Off, uh, where the guys exchanged faces. And uh, one of the bad guys stepped forward, and, and uh, there was this shot, um, and a guy shot one of the bad guys in the head, and all you could see was not the shot, but his brain being splattered all over the wall. That scene was inspired by one of Walt's talks. <laughs> and if you see that movie Face Off, when they have the rolling credits, you'll see it at the little end. If you read it, it says something like, Damn Walt Henriksen. What it said? It's a backhanded complaint. He, he loves Walt. Well, um, you know I'm Irish. McCure. <laughs> and uh, there were these uh, two Irishmen sitting in a bar. And I have to tell you, my Irish brogue sounds a lot like Jamaican. <laughs> so you just have to put up with You've got to imagine that it's Irish, okay? And uh, so these two Irish guys are sitting in the pub and they're drinking and nobody else is in there. And uh, one of them uh, says, Sasai, uh, where are you from? He says, I'd be from County Cork. He says, no, man. He says, I'm from, I'm from County Cork. He says, you not be telling me. Yes. He says, where, where, you, where you be living then? He says, I, says, I live on a Rose O'Sharon. No, man, not so. He says, yes. He says, I, I be living on a Rose O'Sharon. He says, not true. He says, yes, it is. He says, where you be going to school now? Go to, I graduated from my Lady of Peace. No, modest, not, no. So I, I'm from, graduated from Our Lady of Peace. This is all, this is, this is remarkable. And the phone rings. And the bartender walks over to the phone and picks it up and he's talking. He says, no, it's pretty quiet here. Nobody here but the O'Shaughnessy twins. <laughs> pray precious Lord I just uh, ask that you would open our eyes and, and uh, further instruct us from your word uh, give us insight not only into your word but how it applies to our lives and how we can live it out every day in the name of Jesus amen well the theme for the weekend is, as you know is from 1 Chronicles 12, the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times. Men who understood the times. But we are living in a very strange and wonderful time because of what's happening in the Middle East. 
And uh, just to give you an idea of how dramatic the events are, uh, when Carl Sandburg traveled to Israel in the early, very early part of the 20th century, uh, he said that all he could find, and he was not, um, I don't believe he was a believer, but he had gone to Israel, not just to go to Israel, but to go to the Middle East. And he said he went to Israel and all he saw out there was one Bedouin uh, child with a sheep. And he said, this is truly a God-forsaken land. And his proof of the unreliability of Scripture was the state of Israel at the time. Because one, it didn't exist. It was called, at that time, Palestine. And it was an absolute desert. Nobody wanted it. It was uninhabited. It was barren. It had no resources that had been tapped into. Nobody wanted it. It was on no one's map. It was not a point of interest. And for people to say that this was God's focal point was a matter of farce to him. And now look where we are. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to quickly walk you through. And, and, and because time is short, I'm actually going to not take questions. Only because I won't know the answers. <laughs> My pretense is that I don't have enough time to get to the, through the material. Um, so I'm really going to run you through. You're not going to be able to keep up with uh, the scriptural passages, and I'm not going to let. I'm not going to wait for you to get to them. Just write it down, and uh, uh, bear with me. So let me tell you what I'm going to talk to you about, and where we're going to end up. I'm going. To, I'm going to give you a very, very brief overview of um, God's outreach to men through the missionary process, first started with the Abrahamic Covenant, the role of the nation of Israel or the Hebrew people in this missionary plan before Jesus was born, their role when Jesus came on the scene, and where we are today. Because the principal conflict of the world is from the two lines of Abraham. The line that went through Isaac, which are the Jewish people, and the line that went through Ishmael, which are the Arabs. Okay? Don't call them Muslims, call them Arabs. Remember, Muslim is a religion, it's not a people group. So we have the line of Ishmael and the line of Isaac. And that is the focal point of the conflict of the world. And it is also the two people groups who are the hardest for the church to reach today. It has all it has been so traditionally. And it is now so today. And there is a reason for that spiritually. Because that's where the spiritual battle is being fought. Through the lines of Ishmael and the lines of Isaac. Okay? So I'm going to start off. <clears throat> and I'm going to first turn to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. And this is before Abram has a name change. He is still known as Abram. And the Bible describes him as the first Hebrew. Abram is the first Hebrew. 
And you have to know that all Arabs trace their lineage through the Quran and otherwise to Abraham. All the, they regard the Old Testament as prophets. Moses is one of their greatest prophets. Jesus is recognized as a prophet. But their lineage, their first patriarch, is Abraham. Okay. Now, Abraham lived in a um, polytheistic or, or pagan society um, in Ur. And actually, his, it appears that his father, Terah, was called out to go to the promised land. But he got as far as Haran, and, and he stopped. Wouldn't go any further. Uh, and, and, and perhaps that has application for many of us because what I suspect happened is that he got as far as Haran which was basically where you know you couldn't get cable in Haran um, you couldn't get CNN there was no 7-Eleven uh, and, and, and uh, Tara must have thought I, I, heard, I heard God wrong he couldn't want me to go out there because there's nothing out there this is beyond my comfort zone, so I'm stopping in Haran. And only after Terah died did the call come, and this time it was to Abram. And so this is the context in Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. I mean, he's got to really emphasize it this time. To the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, some of your Bibles will say nations, but it is the, it is the Hebrew word mishpakah which means family or family groups. So the Mercurians are a family group, just like the Fullers are a family group. And you all, I'm going to ask you another trick question like I did yesterday. The Hebrew word all means what? All. Oh. Man, I can't sneak anything by you guys. <laughs> In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this first uh, missionary was called to leave his home and to go into a land that was foreign to him. And at that time, you could sum up the, the missionary call as come and claim. Or let me rephrase it. Go and claim. All right? Leave and you're going to go to a foreign land. And then, very interestingly, God gives these repeated promises to Abram over the course of his adult life, coming about every 20 years or so to renew the promise, I'm going to give you a son, God would disappear for 20 years, come back and say, I'm going to give you a son, disappear for 20 years. And then it was 99 years old, he said, I'm going to give you a son, and, his, and I want you to call him Isaac. And they called him Isaac. Because when God renewed this promise that next year you're going to have a son, Sarah was 10 years younger, she was 89, and she laughed in her tent. And Isaac is the Hebrew word for laughter. And so God said, you're going to call him Isaac. Both as a rebuke to Sarah for laughing, but also 
to show his grace because they would be laughing with joy that in their old age God fulfilled this covenant promise with them. So Isaac becomes the son through whom the covenant of Abraham passes. Ishmael is the son who was born to him first through Hagar, an Egyptian slave and I guess you call concubine, for lack of a better word. Because they disbelieve the power of God to produce a son and fulfill his covenant. And not believing God temporarily to do the impossible. Sarah says to Abram, according to the custom of that day, take my handmaiden and have a son by her and that will be our son and the covenant will pass through him. So Abram went into Hagar, had a son Ishmael, and there was conflict in the family immediately with this birth. Ishmael was uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 years older than Abram when Ab- uh, Isaac, when Isaac was born, and he used to taunt the little boy, and Hagar used to taunt Sarah because Sarah was still childless. And um, uh, when Sarah was still childless, and then because it was a society based on primogeniture, the old, the firstborn son inherits most or at least a double portion. When Isaac was born, Hagar would still ridicule uh, um, Sarah and look upon her with contempt because she, Hagar, had the firstborn son. And Ishmael, who was kind of a rough, athletic young man, uh, would tease and taunt little Isaac. And finally, Sarah came to to, uh, uh, Abram and said, you got to get him out. They, get, they have to go. And, it, and Abraham said, no, uh, I, I can't, you know, I can't do that. And God came to Abraham and said, you've got to obey Sarah. She is right on this point. I want you to send out Hagar and Ishmael. Don't worry, I will take care of them. And I will pass a blessing on. And he said, he gave the, he gave the line of Ishmael a blessing. And they separated and went on. And then he said, but the, the, the covenantal promise will be fulfilled through you, Abram, but through the line of Isaac, not through the line of Ishmael. So that the Abrahamic covenant that I just read to you in Genesis 12 was going to be fulfilled through the line of Isaac. Now, in confirming the covenant, God put Abram in a trance. And in that, or, or deep sleep, the, the scripture calls it, and he says... And you might be interested in this. Um, I'm reading from uh, Genesis 15. Know when the, uh, now when the sun was going down, uh, Genesis 15:12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Okay? That was part of his covenant. Now, The covenant, that part of the covenant, was literally fulfilled. 
um, the line of Isaac, because Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And again, they separated. Uh, God kept the two lines separate. The, the covenant went through Jacob, whose name was later changed to what? Israel. Israel. All right, one who overcomes with God, or one who conquers with God. And, and God changed his name from Jacob, which means deceiver or supplanter, to one Israel, one who conquers with God or is victorious with God. And they traveled in the land of promise until a famine hit. And when the famine hit, they went north and, and east to Egypt, where unbeknownst to them, their son Joseph was second in the command of Pharaoh. And when they went in, they went in with about 66 men and then the women. Okay? Small family. They came out, if you turn to, uh, quickly, Exodus chapter 12, it says um, in verse 37, Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Remesis to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, not counting the children. And a mixed multitude also went up with them. Now, for approximately the 18 months that Moses challenged Pharaoh in Egypt to let the Hebrew people go, Egypt was the center of the world at that time. And so it was filled with many different people groups. For example, in San Diego, our church is in the middle of a neighborhood called City Heights, there are 40 languages and 85 dialects within a mile of our church. People come from all over the world for a whole variety of reasons. They want to be the next Michael Jordan. They want to go to school. They, they're fleeing persecution. They want to know what it's like to be free. You know, it, the, the numbers vary. Egypt was the same way. People came to Egypt from all over the world at that time because it was sort of the United States of the day. And so when God demonstrated his sovereign power in, in Egypt, uh, all these alien onlookers observed what God was doing on behalf of the Hebrew people. And when God would bring his plagues, he would say to Moses, tell Pharaoh that I'm going to bring this plague and then this plague, and that plague will strike every place in Egypt except Goshen, which is where the Hebrew people lived. So, here you are in Egypt. God is turning the water to blood everywhere. And if you have a refrigerator and you got your sparklets water, you open it up and it's blood. And this is everywhere in Egypt except in Goshen where the Hebrews live. And when God brings gnats that are destroying everything, they hit every place in Egypt except in Goshen, where the Hebrews live. When God brings boils to animals and man, all the animals and all the people have boils except the people and the animals in Goshen, where, which is the, the Hebrews' home. And then when God has the Passover and kills the firstborn male, animal and human, it happens every place in Egypt except in Goshen, where the Hebrews have obeyed by putting, uh, slaying a lamb and putting its blood on the doorposts, it doesn't take much of a rocket scientist 
at the end of that plague to, to say, I got a choice. I can stay in devastated Egypt or I can leave with this people called Hebrews and follow their God. And so in verse 12 of Exodus, I mean verse 38 of Exodus 12, and it says a mixed multitude, that phrase in the Hebrew means a mongrel collection. That is, a, a, an incredible variety of people groups left with the Hebrews. And within six weeks after their departure from Israel, uh, from Egypt, God gives them the law. It's, it's just a phenomenal undertaking. And he organizes Jewish structure. They go from being slaves to God saying, you are a royal priesthood. And he gives them this published law, and he speaks to them from Mount Sinai, while they're in the valley of Mount Sinai, in the presence of everybody. The entire nation of Israel and all the collection of hangers-on can hear God and see him announce the Ten Commandments. They can see his glory on the top of Mount Sinai. They can witness this as an entire people group of some two million plus people. Alright? And he does that within the first six weeks. And one of the purposes for this and so that when they set up the nation of Israel, people will see how great God is by reason of his deliverance of the people and the society that he set up, which was a theocracy. That is, it was administered by God through the priests, and they didn't have a legislature because God, all the laws came from God. Not by democratic vote and not by autocratic imposition. The law came from God and it applied to everyone. And in that structure, any alien who wanted to become a Hebrew, part of the covenant community with God, could do so by entering the covenant just as every Jew had to enter the covenant. And the Jew entered the covenant by, by being circumcised. And it, you, would, you would find it an interesting word study to look up the word alien or stranger and how many times it appears in the Hebrew law. And basically it says you must, you must respect the stranger. Why? Because you were a stranger in Egypt. You must give them rights. Give them a chance to, to, to be on an equal footing with you. Why? Because you were a stranger in Israel. And God identifies himself, if you turn to Exodus chapter 20, you will see how God identifies himself uh, when he announces the Ten Commandments. And for the Hebrew people, they don't call these the Ten Commandments, they call them the Ten Words. Because the first word is not a commandment, it is a statement. God says, I am, this is how he begins the, the, the Ten Words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That was part of God's title. Look up how many times in the Old Testament God so identifies himself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So that they would never forget. And they were supposed to have a society with a different missionary focus where Abraham's focus was go 
and claim the Jews were supposed to live such a life under the leadership of God that they would say to the rest of the world, come and see that God is good. And in fact, that's what happened many times when the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon. Sheba is that part of the country that would include Ethiopia today. When the Queen of Sheba came to see how Solomon worshipped God, that there was law, she said, I, you know, I, I, this is unbelievable. This is amazing. I've never seen anything like that. And to show you the impact, because I think somebody mentioned that, um, turn to Acts uh, chapter 9. Let's see if I'm right. Yeah, no, it's 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 25. Acts 8, verse 25. Uh, verse 26. And this is at Jerusalem. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And uh, Philip arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to do what? To worship. Why was he coming to Jerusalem to worship? Because this is the same, he, that Ethiopia, again, is part of the area that was called Cheba, queen of, that witness, that witness for God, that, the reason for which God established, at least one of the reasons, God established Israel as a nation that people would see the goodness and the glory of God through how he ministered to this one covenant community. And people would want to become part of the covenant community. And if they wanted to become part and become circumcised, they could not be refused. And they had to obey the law just like anybody else had to obey the law. Now, this is part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to read a, a slight restatement of it in Genesis 28. Because this is Jacob. Jacob is now um, uh, going back to um, uh, the promised land after living with his uh, uncle Laban. And he's scared to death because he's going to meet, uh, he, he, he's afraid. He falls asleep and he has the vision of the angels descending and ascending. All right? And in Genesis 28, he's sharing with his his sons, well, Genesis 28 is the scene, and later in his life, he's sharing with his sons also what happened. And what he says, God says to him, repeating the covenant in Genesis 28:14, in you and in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, in other words, through the Hebrew people, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this has literally been fulfilled, but it hasn't been completely 
fulfilled. Now, we may lose track of the fact that the Jewish people have been a blessing to the entire world. And you may ask, well, how? And this is phenomenal because there are there are more people in California than there are Jews in the whole world today. Because of pogrom after pogrom, because of the Holocaust and other reasons. But this has literally been fulfilled. Now, let me give you some examples of this fulfillment. First, you have to understand that the knowledge of one God was preserved by one people group for thousands of years. The societies that you and I typically in the West regard as advanced, Rome, Greece, were all polytheistic cultures. They did not believe in one God. They believed in many gods. In fact, there was a saying in Greece that it is easier to find a God in Greece than a man. Because they had a God for everything. And this was Greece at its height. The knowledge of one God was preserved by one small people group for, thousands, for thousands of years in the face of incredible adversity. So that's one blessing, just one. Secondly, the law was given to the Hebrew people for the rest of the world. It was given to the Hebrew people. The law is a blessing. The Bible says in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. There is a strain of thought in the Protestantism that there's something bad about the law. We're not under law, we're under grace. And we have a tendency to think that we don't have to obey the law. And I've found Christians who say, well, uh, I don't have to do that. Why? I'm not under the law. I go, whoa, whoa. Where did you think, why do you think you don't have to obey the Ten Commandments? Because I'm under grace. Walt has in his devotional this great, this great statement. It, it had such an impact on me. And I hope I've got it right. That grace leads to presumption. As surely as security leads to carelessness. In other words, we think because we have grace that we can sin with impunity and that we have this security in Christ we can be lax in the way we observe the commandments of God and that's not the teaching of scripture okay so we have and if you think the law is not a blessing and why it was one of the very first things God gave them when he liberated the people from Egypt think of what it would be like on something as simple is driving without rules of the road. Just think of it. And some of you may smile and think, yeah, that would probably be fun. But it would be chaos. It would be unsafe to step out on the street. In other words, we don't know whether you can turn right or left, whether you come into an intersection, whether you, you yield or go, and, and you drive on the sidewalk if you need to. We are so used to being under law we don't understand what a catastrophe it would be with no law. And God's grace is shown in the law because of 
several things, one of which it reveals his character. And the second one is that now we know. There's no, there's no guesswork. The, uh, I know, I know that I cannot, I, I, I should not commit adultery. I don't have to guess. There's no debate. Because I think, well, you know, a man can be more satisfied if, he's, if he has more than one more than one wife and he can be kind to her because he's not frustrated being trained. You, you can rationalize your way into having affairs all the time. Uh, I remember uh, I was a believer maybe five years or so and one of my mentors came to me and this guy was very influential in my life. He was not a believer. Very influential. And I shudder to think what my life would have been like had he not intervened. And um, he came to me, came to San Diego, and I took him out to dinner. I was just so bursting with pride that he would come to see me. He was a nationally renowned educator. And he, he said, Billy, he used to call me Billy, how's, how's your marriage? I said, it's just great. I'm so fortunate. He said, can I give you some advice? And I said, yes. This, I mean, of course you can. And he said, Billy, it's important for you to have affairs periodically. And he went on to explain why. Now let me tell you, without the law, his arguments could be very compelling. And it fit right in with part of my sin nature. I can relate to this argument. <laughs> you understand? But the law... See, I don't, I don't have to question whether that is right or wrong because God gave the Hebrew people the law. I know that it is wrong. Third, all the patriarchs came through the law. I mean, uh, are Hebrews. All the prophets are Hebrews. The entire Old Testament. There, there is some debate whether Luke was a Jew, but if he was, then every book in the Bible was written by a Jew. And if Luke was a Gentile, that means 64 of the 66 books were written by a Jew. Now think of what your life would be like without the Bible. Just think for a moment of what it was, how much we study today just about how we know God and how we relate to him. If we did not have that. Most of what we know about the character of God comes directly out of the Old Testament. Much of the New Testament grows out of the Old Testament. Try this experiment. Take a Bible that you don't mind marking up or tearing out pages. Go to your New Testament and tear out or black out every direct or indirect reference to the Old Testament and see what you have left. Let me give you some examples. Thou shalt love the Lord thine thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That didn't first appear in the New Testament in Matthew 22:39. That's directly from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
did not appear the first time in Matthew 22, 37. It appeared the first time in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. The concept of Lord as shepherd began not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. The Lord is what? My shepherd, I shall not want. The concept of a personal relationship with God, I submit to you, started in the Old Testament, not the New. When Moses said to God, show me thy way that I may know thee. Without the Old Testament, we would not be able to identify Jesus as the Messiah. We would not know how to distinguish Jesus from all the other pretenders. Without the Old Testament, there would be no prophecies which verify the truth of Scripture. God has a special relationship with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. Isaiah 43, verse 21. God says, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Isaiah 43, 21. God uniquely identifies himself with Israel. Isaiah 43.15, God describes himself as the creator of Israel. God identifies himself this way, the Holy One of Israel. It's used over and over. Psalm 71.21, Isaiah 1.4. I mean, it's just, look it up and you'll find it's a repeated use, the Holy One of Israel. God says when he identifies himself to Moses from the burning bush, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So this missionary focus said is in Deuteronomy 31 verse 12. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates that they may hear. And that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law. So the first one was go and claim. The second one was come and see. So live that others will come and see. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see the Abrahamic covenant continuing to be fulfilled. Pentecost. Everybody at Pentecost is a Jew. The first missionaries who had to leave Israel or Jerusalem and go some, someplace else to a foreign land were Jews. Acts 1.8 You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. But at that time, people were still thinking that the, the, the missionary focus was come and see. 
God announced in Acts 1-8 a totally new paradigm for the Jewish people. For 2,000 years, it was have a Jewish society with such obedience to God that people would come and God would be glorified. And now God is giving a new paradigm. He's telling them to leave. Sometimes we can be critical of the Jewish people because uh, God said, Jesus said in, in, in the, the famous Matthew Great Commission, go ye and I will make you disciples of the nations, which is again the Greek word ethnos for ethnic group. It's not a political entity, it's ethnic groups. But here in Acts 1.8, he's telling them, I want you to go to Jerusalem, I want you to go out to Judea, and I want you to go out to Samaria, and I want you to go to the remotest part of the, the earth. Gentlemen, this was a totally new paradigm. Um, and and the, pad the paradigm shift was so radical that in order to get the Jewish people to obey and leave, he had to destroy Jerusalem. It, it, it was too big a it was too big a change, and God had he had to basically say, Michael, bring the whip, because they wouldn't leave Jerusalem. And now the missionary paradigm is go and tell. First it was go and claim. Then it was come and see. And then it was go and tell. And let me tell you, it's going to wind up again being come and see. But right now we're in the go and tell phase. In this go and tell phase, when the, when the church first started... They were all Jews. And they were still trapped in the second paradigm of come and see. And so they thought, and here was the problem with what Paul calls the Judaizers, that in order to become a Christian, to be eligible to become a Christian, you had to first what? You had to first become a Jew. You weren't eligible for the way unless you became part of the covenant community as a Jew and so this was part of the real tussle in the early church because the 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 the, the new Jewish converts were saying well we got to get these people quickly into the synagogues and teach them how to be Jews so that they can receive Jesus and Paul was saying no wait wait we got a new paradigm the covenant community stays the nation of Israel but this Abrahamic covenant is broadened to include the Gentiles. And they don't have to become Jews first. They're going, and I, this is heresy to a Jew at the time. This is not just... Yeah, so God comes to Peter and he gives him a vision. And in that vision, he, he, he sets down once a sheet with all the um, animals that were ceremonially unclean. Uh, because in the sacrifices, you could only sacrifice clean animals. You could only sacrifice goats, uh, lambs, bulls, and then pigeons. 
but nothing else was eligible. See, God sovereignly determines how we approach him. That's one of the teachings of the sacrifices. You had to do it a certain way. You could only use certain animals because God has the sole right to determine how we approach him. And so these animals were ceremonially unclean and they also could not be eaten. And Paul, Peter sees, he says, oh no. He says, arise Peter and eat. Peter says, oh no. I, I, I know you're trying to trick me. I know the test. I have never eaten anything that's unclean. God gives him this vision a second time. Arise and eat. Oh no, Lord. I have not eaten anything that's unclean. And God says, what I have cleansed, you can't call unclean. Uh, it tells us in Acts 10 that Paul, Peter was puzzled by this. He was scratching his head and God said, somebody's going to come to visit you. Follow them and just do what I tell you as you go along. And so, meanwhile, Cornelius uh, has a bunch of Gentiles waiting for Peter's message. And Peter walks in with his entourage and all these Gentiles here. They're not Jews. And he's wondering, what am I doing here? But since God sends him here and, and his host says, we've come, God told us that you're going to come and give us a message of truth. And Peter is very suspicious about this. He says, okay. And he gives them the gospel. And they all begin to speak in tongues just as the Jews had done on the day of Pentecost. And Peter says, now I see. God is not a respecter of persons. But to anyone who hears and receives, he will give eternal life. It was a revelation that these, they had not made the conversion step yet. They hadn't become Jews. They were in their Gentile state acceptable to God. What a revelation and a new paradigm. And it set up this early conflict in the church that just, they just wrestled with this. And Peter vacillated. He went back and forth. And it was a matter of controversy between Peter and Paul in the early church. And then a, 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 a strange and a tragic thing happened. As the years progressed under the new paradigm of go and tell, and you, you could be part of the Abrahamic covenant without being circumcised. It soon, not soon, it gradually developed that you, in order to be a Christian, you had to renounce Judaism. You see the twist? First it was you had to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And then, as the church progressed, it had to be you had to renounce being a Jew in order. And anti-Semitism have been two of the biggest spiritual obstacles to the missionary movement of the Church of God for, for thousands of years. When the missionary movement started in the United States, blacks could not join. Blacks were forbidden to be missionaries. Every once in a while, some missionary group would do it, but for, for years, it couldn't happen. If blacks were to be missionaries, they went totally solo, without any support or cooperation from the Western church. But what is worse, I want you to bear with me when I say this. 
the institutional Christian church is to the Jew what the Ku Klux Klan is to African Americans. I want to repeat that. The institutional Christian church is to the Jew what the Ku Klux Klan is to the African American. It is a symbol of prejudice, of hatred, of murder, of intolerance, on and on and on. And this has been the history in large part of the institutional church's relationship with the chosen nation of Israel. Let me read something to you. What shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? We must prayerfully and reverentially practice a merciful severity. This writer set out a program for merciful severity. Let me give you my honest advice. First, their synagogues or churches should be set on fire and what does, whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved such public lying cursing or blaspheming of his son and his Christians. Secondly, <clears throat> their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. They ought to be put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach. Fifth, passport and traveling privilege, privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Sixth, all their cash and valuables of silver and gold ought to be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Seventh, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the hoe, the spade, and spindle, and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses as, in, as is enjoined upon Adam's children. To sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. The author, Martin Luther. He started out early in his face as a great champion of the Jews because he said, when we break with the Catholic Church, the Jews will flock in and become Christians. And when they did not, he became bitter. His writings became the theological justification for the Nazi regime. They would quote Martin Luther in the Nuremberg Trials. And they would say, we have done no more 
than what your own Protestant luminary Martin Luther advocated for years. So that today, for a Jew to to hear a Christian would be like me hearing a Ku Klux Klan member talk to me about the Bible. He can't tell me anything. Ah, but now. So that's the one people group we find it very difficult to reach because we have earned their hatred and distrust. We have earned it as an institutional church. We have told them they have to stop being Jews. There has been pogrom after pogrom after pogrom. And the the institutional church has always been involved. And then the second group are our Arab brothers. But this is what scripture tells us. Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 12. Then it will happen... And I'll give you a chance to turn there because this is such a great verse. Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 12. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So God is going to assemble his people where? To Israel. He's going to assemble them from the four corners of the earth. Remember, after the, the, the last dispersion, most Jews, and, and the, then the sacking of the temple in the, uh, of the Senate, of the temple in Jerusalem, where the, many of the birth records were kept so that you could trace your genealogies. It is extremely difficult for Jews today to know what tribe they belong to. They have no genealogical record to prove it, and they do it through circumstantial means. So if a Jew is named Shohet, which means butcher, he will say he's from the tribe of Levi because they were the priests who did the sacrifices, and they were the only group that could sacrifice the animals. So they must be Levites. But they have no genealogical record to establish that. You understand? Um, Isaiah 19, this is a verse that will give us great encouragement in our present times. Isaiah 19, starting at verse 21. 
Isaiah 19, starting at verse 21. The Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now, Assyria is the southwest part of what you and I call the Middle East, which would encompass most of Iraq and Iran today. Okay? A highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day will be the third party, I'm sorry, in that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Iraq, Iran. Hard to imagine, isn't it? This can't possibly be. And that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and the Iraqis and, uh, and Iranians, or Syrians, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, gentlemen, we're going to wind up there. Now, it may not seem possible from where we are today when you see what's happening in Israel and how much hatred there is among some Arab circles to get to the point that that will be fulfilled. Humanly speaking, this is impossible. And without the word of God, if somebody said to us today, based on the historical climate and the present climate, if we said that Egypt, Iraq, Iran, and Israel are going to join hands and worship the one God, if I said that to you, you would be able to look at me and say, this guy is nuts. And you would rightfully pick up and go. Because the next thing I'm going to do is sell you ice Take you, to Ireland, take you to Antarctica and say, we're going to sell ice to the Eskimos. It's just stupid. But this is the promise of God, and it is the continuing fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, um, turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. And I'm going to start reading at verse 6. In that day... I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory, let me repeat that, the Lord will also save the tents of Judah first 
in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. Judah today is the West Bank. If you look on a map of how God divided the land among the 12 tribes and you look at the land that belonged to Judah and Benjamin, you're looking at the West Bank, which is the, of, it is the hottest part of the hotbed of the Middle East. And God says that he is going to save the tents of Judah first. Now, we have been talking about obedience and, and, and even though Walt said he was joking, I nevertheless want to build upon that issue. We're having, um, and I, I, I submit this to you for your thinking, for your consideration. The Bible tells us that in the last days the whole world will rise up against Israel. And right now, for the first time in the United States, by the way, as a matter of interest, the United States was the first country that ever formally invited the Jews to come and live. George Washington made a proclamation. It's one reason Jewish people have an affection for the United States. It's the first country that ever openly, publicly said, we want the Jews to come and live here with no restrictions. And every other society they lived in, they lived in what are called ghettos, which was a term, it's an Italian word, that was started in Italy when the Pope segregated a part of the, of the land around a cannon factory. That's what ghetto is. It's G-E-T-T-O, a cannon factory. And the Jews were restricted to live and work in that area, hence the term ghetto. And throughout Eastern Europe and Western Europe, Jews were forcibly restricted to ghettos. They had to live there. They had to work there. They were taxed more heavily. This was true in Russia. It was true in Poland. It was true in Czechoslovakia long before the Nazi regime ever came. And Jewish history is a history of persecution and pogrom one after the other. It is remarkable. It is a miracle of God that Jewish people live today. We should draw encouragement that God is sovereign by the fact that there is a single Jew alive today. Alright, so. Paul says to us in Romans 11, he says, as concerning the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sakes. But as touching election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Now, here's another reason you and I have to be thankful to the Jews based on Romans 11. Maybe I should just read it. I'm going to start at verse 7 of Romans 11. What then, that which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained... But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And then I'm going to hop down to verse 11. Well, no, 8. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block as a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, Paul is saying, look, and he goes on, in fact, let me hop down for a minute, to verse 23. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were granted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, that is the, the, the covenant people, how much more shall those who were the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel shall be saved just as it is written. Um, In other words, one of the things we have to be thankful for, and this is an irony, is that because of their temporary disobedience, God grafted in the Gentiles to the covenant community, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Now, while we're here, we owe, according to this plan, part of the fact that we have been saved by the fact that God has temporarily blinded and hardened the Hebrew people. And we mistook that in the institutional church and began to call Jews, have you ever heard this term, Jesus killers. And we had all these myths in the Christian community that they were stealing Christian babies and conducting their sacrifices. And this was used as justification for some of the pogroms in Eastern Europe. And if we have been blessed this rich, look at the teaching we've gotten from Walt this weekend. If this is coming to us, this ability to know God, the richness of his blessing, while the Jews as a nation are in disobedience, just think what will come to us when they are grafted back in. We should be zealously pleading with God to end the blindness and hasten their salvation. Because selfishly, we stand to gain so much more. I mean, just little things like... If, if you were to take a look at the arts, uh, sciences, uh, literature, you name it, you will find that Jewish people, when they are given a chance to breathe, make a contribution totally disproportionate to their numbers. It makes no sense. But we are supposed to provoke them to jealousy by loving God and loving them. We may have, we haven't provoked them to jealousy, we have provoked them, 
but it has not been a godly provocation. And so the Jewish people have been the group that the Christian church either has persecuted or ignored as irrelevant. And we've even had the arrogance to say that the church has replaced the covenant people of God. Do you know what that must be like to a Jew to hear that? That we are the new Jews? I remember listening to a program about the history of jazz. I don't know if you saw it, the Ken Burns program that came and And there was this fascinating thing. Obviously, what people grew created jazz? Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> There's a man who just lost his salvation. Close to him. Now I'm sitting watching this program and they have a, a group, of, now forgive me, we're brothers in Christ, right? A, a, a group of white musicians from uh, New York in the 30s saying, one, that white people invented jazz, and two, black people did not have the mental ability to deal with the harmonic changes in jazz. I'm thinking, you got serious at this. you got to be crazy. And we're just talking about jazz. And here comes the institutional church and say, well, God has wiped the Jewish people off the theological map. We are the new Jews and we are the new Israel. Now, how in the world is a Jew going to listen to us if we believe that? And then where do we stand? If God can break his covenant with Israel and we are relying on the covenant and his promise to be saved, where does that leave us? If God can change his mind on the issue, what security do we have? And so we are going to get to Zechariah 12 and Isaiah 19, but God is going to make it happen. And we see it happening today because the whole world is turning against Israel for the first time. And our, since, since, the, since 1900, when Israel did not exist as a nation, you know, but, but since now, this is the first time that Israel forming as a nation that the world has turned against it. There are now demonstrations on college campuses in the U.S. saying that the Jewish people are wrong. That has never happened in America. So we are getting to the point. Now what's uh, tragically going to happen is that, at least as I understand the scripture, there's going to be a desperate attempt for a political solution. But gentlemen, it's not a political issue. It is a, it is a spiritual issue for God, because God has said, oh, <clears throat> Israel does not belong. Can you tell me to whom Israel belongs? Yeah. Uh, and I, I just can't find the passage right now. It's in Deuteronomy. Israel belongs to God. And he says, but I'm letting you, the Jewish people, be my only legal residence. That's why under the law, a Jew could never sell his land. He could only he he could he could work it and pass it in the family, but but God owned it. He could lease it, but he could never sell it. And if they quote, and even what they called a sale was really just a long-term lease, and it couldn't go longer than fifty years. That would be the the year of jubilee when it had the land had to go back to the original family or clan that owned it, because God owned the land. See, God has the sovereign right to determine who lives on his land. 
It's not a matter for the Jews and the Palestinians to vote on. It's not a matter for the UN to vote on. It's not a matter for you and I to vote on. The issue is God has said how this land will be dealt with. And so the blessing that will come to the world is that our Arab brothers, and they are our brothers by election, and even though we look at those Arab faces and they hate Christians and they hate the West, and they hate the West ironically primarily because without the West, Israel could be destroyed. Without the United States, I should say. Without the United States, Israel be, would, be, would be destroyed. They would bomb it out. It would not exist. Khomeini was desperate to get rid of the United States and weaken it because that way they could destroy Israel. And he would say, he would call the United States that Satan, the great Satan. Why? Because it allowed the other Satan, Israel, to exist. It is a spiritual battle. And we are going to be tempted, and I, and I hope you search the scriptures for yourself and not take my word on it. Please go and you'll, maybe you'll come up with something different. But God says, Israel is mine and I'm letting only the Jewish people live there. And it's, this is going to be the first time that the institutional church will face persecution if we support Israel. Because we are bringing in humanistic notions of fairness. Palestinians were there first, so they were there longer. Rather than the issue is, but God said, this is his word. How do we deal with that? And so the blessing that will come to the Arab people is that they must come to recognize that the Jews are God's covenant people. They must come to recognize that. Not by force. It's a spiritual thing. We must love them and love them in the kingdom. But we can't love them by compromising the word of God. And it was, it's going to be intense persecution for our Arab brothers who say Israel is the covenant nation of God. The Jews are our brothers and they are God's chosen people. But both the Jews have to say that for they are largely a secular people, not a religious people. But there is wind blowing. Jews are beginning to have Bible studies. Jews are beginning to go to the synagogue and asking to be instructed in the word. And they are asking the questions that you and I ask. What does this say? What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? They are talking about having a personal relationship with God. And for the first time, I get these publications from Israel. A red heifer was born on Israel, Israeli soil for the first time in 2,000 years. And this was the heifer that is uniquely used in the sacrifices in Israel. They've never done it in 2,000 years. And so the Jewish people are beginning to say now in their publications, Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. The church can aid, but the only way the church can aid is by going to our Jewish brothers and asking forgiveness for what we have done to them. And God has given us that commitment because when you turn to First Second Corinthians five with the passage that is always quoted out of context for if any man is in Christ he is a new creature he is a new creation when you go through the rest of that text we are a new creation for one purpose 
so that we can effect the ministry of reconciliation through the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation. You cannot have reconciliation without repentance and regeneration. We, do, we have to recognize what a blessing the Jewish people have been to the world. That God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in every detail so that every people group will have a representative in heaven. Everyone throughout all time. And he will do it through that covenant. So I, I urge you as brothers to, to think about ways that God can use you in this time. In this time. Lord God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the Jewish people who have preserved the knowledge of one God and through whom you have passed to us the living word. We ask that you would give us wisdom in dealing with our brothers by election who are Jews and who are Arabs. For the issues are so complex. Do not let us get wrongfully sidetracked into political issues to the misunderstanding of the spiritual battle that is ahead of us. Lord, we need wisdom and we need courage. And we plead with you to give us both for thy glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. <clears throat>